0: God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering upon the mountain of which I shall tell you. Tell us a story, Dad. Tell us a story before we go to bed. Okay, son, I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you the story of our father Abraham. Gather close to the fire now. It was like this. And the Hebrew parent would tell his wide-eyed son, one of the greatest of Israel's stories. He would say how the wind howled and moaned on Mount Moriah, a cold and lonely place. He would recount how Isaac was laid on the hastily constructed stone altar, bound and ready. How Abraham gripped the knife tight in his sweating hand and raised it for the kill, ready to plunge it into the heart of the son he loved. Down it came, down, 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 stop! And the wide-eyed child of the desert would start, as he always did when his father told him that awesome and terrible tale. I know it's off to bed for you, my lad, but you remember the faith of our father Abraham. Remember that our God, unlike the gods of Canaan, said stop. Our God had no interest in the disgusting practice of human sacrifice. Never has, never will. Now, sleep and sweet dreams, little fella. Sweet dreams. The champion of atheism, Richard Dawkins, hates this story. For him, it sums up much that is bad about religion and religious people. He talks disparagingly about God's last-minute change of plan. It turns out, he suggests, that God was only joking after all. Dawkins goes on, By the standards of modern morality, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in an asymmetrical power relationship, and the first use of the Nuremberg defence, I was only obeying orders. For us too, maybe even more so, it's a strange and difficult story with its grim echoes of superstition and child sacrifice, And it seems it's God who starts the whole drama moving with his grotesque request. You can almost hear the agonised reverberations of Abram's soul-wrenching cry of, No! Please, no! When first the impossible possibility, the revolting requirement is presented to him to sacrifice his son on a lonely mountaintop. For we know how much he longed for the birth of his son, how uninhibited was his devotion to the boy's welfare. It's almost as if God is rubbing it in, ratcheting up the crescendo of anguish. Take your son, your only son. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. In modern times, we've had more than our fair share of child killers who heard voices in their heads and believed for long enough to do the terrible deed that this was something God was asking them to do. So it takes us more than a little by surprise that this strange and disturbing, and for Isaac, you would have to think, emotionally scarring event, should be presented as a high example of faith. We know they lived in different times, but come on. Operating, as we do, on an entirely different set of values, values informed by the developed Judeo-Christian mindset, we find it a bit macabre that God, it is suggested, should have chosen to explore the limits of faith with Abraham in this way, by this method. Bizarre or what? People we know have the, have the strangest ideas about God and do the oddest things in order to please him, as they imagine. They will cut themselves with stones, starve themselves almost to death. They will live on top of poles for months like a devout David Blaine. They will travel across continents to visit a holy place or die with their husbands on a funeral pyre in order to please God. They will walk on their knees to Fatima, refuse to buy a Sunday paper on the Isle of Skye in order to please God. They will deny themselves a bacon sandwich or they will plot murder of hundreds, hundreds of those who do not believe, thinking this will somehow bring delight to the heart of God. No wonder Dawkins shakes his head and wonders, shakes his head and wonders about faith and God and believers. So many ancient religious expressions embraced the practice of child sacrifice. Carthaginians, the Chinese, the Aztecs, the Celts, the Egyptians, the Incas and the Canaanites. The fact that Abram himself did not find it impossibly odd that God should insist he sacrificed his only son gives us a clue to the culture in which he lived, the air he breathed, the world in which such a request did not seem so strange all the local gods of the indigenous population where abraham had settled seemed to require human sacrifice as a measure of devotion <laughs> as a means of cooling their god's anger and a way to propitiate their rage and if it disappointed abraham somewhat to discover that in this respect his god it seems was just like all the rest he wasn't phased by the fact. This was the world he inhabited. This was the way people spoke, how they conducted their religious life. Who knew any better? God addresses Abram's life in the context, within the cultural framework of his own situation in life and invites him to, to discover something profound, something new and significant about the divine thinking within the terms of... From within the terms of this familiar world. The ancient world of the primitive tribes of the ancient Near East. This is how God will be understood and discovered. He shows himself where we are. And it's using the vocabulary of ideas. All the superstitions and prejudices and limitations. It's there that God will make his very different and distinctive claims on the life of Abraham. In much the same way as he is able to address our lives through the thought forms and ideas and the worldviews that obtain today, now. And we really ought to be suspicious of any form of theology or liturgy, ways of thinking about God or speaking to God that are not actually contemporary, relevant to our lives, our needs, our longings, our fully 21st century understanding of how things are. If we allow how we talk about God and how we talk to God to remain conveniently steeped in the language and culture of previous generations, if that happens and we're content to let that happen, then we risk losing immediacy. We might lose the meaning for us, for our times, our life, because we don't feel that the language actually sounds like the language we're used to using in real life. And so it's a little distanced from our everyday contemporary reality. There are ways of being the church out there and living the faith and thinking about the faith that remain locked up in a time warp. And when we let that happen, we run the risk of the church addressing issues that maybe were issues 100 years ago, but are not very high in anyone's league table of needs here and now. The essential truths about God remain constant. The means of expression we use to communicate those truths must adapt to the realities of the times in which we live or nobody will know what we're talking about or care. And that goes for when we're talking about the role of women, about relationships, about sexuality, about justice, about crime and punishment. The reality is uncomfortable and demanding, but it's it's reality. We can't take refuge in archaic preoccupations, ways of expressing the faith that simply sound odd and inaccessible to our accessible to our contemporaries. Otherwise what we say because of how we say it will lead to our being relegated to the dustbin of irrelevance. Meanwhile, back at Mount Moriah. We need to ask what we learn about the nature of faith from this strange event within Abram's story. We learn that there are inevitably questions hanging in the air when we embark on the life of faith. For three long days, Abram walked that walk and had a million questions buzzing around in his brain as he dragged his feet up the mountain. What good would it do anyone if Isaac, the child of promise, were to be killed? What would people say when they learned of the events that were soon to take place in the desolation of the desert? What would be the verdict of history? How would time judge this craziness? How would he tell Sarah, the boy's mother? How could he tell Sarah what he'd felt compelled to do to her precious boy? And above all, the other questions writ large in his soul, the question, why? You know, why this? Why? Why me? We might ask why indeed, for at first glance, it looks like a kind of divine cruelty. If God knows everything, he will know that when the chips are down, Abraham will obey. So why make him go through this agony? Was it perhaps the only way God could show Abraham once and for all, with an unforgettable clarity, that his God wanted nothing to do with any expression of religion that included in its thinking the notion of human sacrifice or anything like it? Anything that degrades and diminishes, hurts or harms, damages or downgrades the worth of people, the importance of real people with their story. How what we do in the realm of faith affects them or hinders them is crucial. So that far from being the same as the sick divinities of Canaan, Abram's God is revealed to be distinctive and rigorous in his rejection of the vile cruelties associated with the Canaanite fertility cults and all their bloody rituals. One of the shabbiest examples of sloppy thinking in our times is the simplistic, convenient and fundamentally wrong notion that the religions of the world are all basically saying the same thing. If only it were so, life would be a lot simpler. Certainly, on a superficial first glance, each of the great faiths has a a, a superficial similarity, a a sense of the importance of some kind of worship, a special place to do the worshipping in, an ethic that accompanies the spiritual teaching, a sense of the otherness of the divine being, a view of the eternal outcome of things. But these apparent superficialities should not blind us to the crucial differences that exist between the faiths and give them their character, separate them off from one another. The faith of Abraham, with its desire to show, demonstrate devotion to the divine being, offers a radically different interpretation of reality from the Canaanite worldview. And a key distinguishing mark of that difference would prove to be the rejection of human sacrifice. Because of the understanding of God that underpinned the practice. That's what's at stake. Here's the vital difference. This is the light that breaks through the darkness of Mount Moriah. If God were a God to be feared and kept at bay by wilder and wilder sacrifices, get on board by wilder and wilder sacrifices, then that's one view. But if God is to be loved and is loving in his commitment to us, then these excesses have no place and how religion is done. That's the theological nub of the matter. What kind of God are we dealing with here? And how does that shape how we worship him? An angry God to be propitiated, kept at bay, won over? Or a God who knows us and loves us to the very core of our being? Perhaps the whole incident was about Abraham finding out for himself the extent of his loyalty, the relative strength or weakness of his faith. Only when he has been to the brink with God, only then will he know for himself what he really believes, with what passion he believes it. Poised over the prone body of his son, questions burn in his brain. But that's the way it is with faith then as now. There are questions. Especially when life hits you like a steamroller and your assurances and your certainties are crushed to a pulp. Because faith is a living, real, moving thing, things are not done and dusted. If it's all neatly tied parcels that we want, we should try something other than the life of faith. For the believer and you hardly need me to tell you this there is no immunity from the bumps and scrapes and kicks in the teeth that just being a person involves and therefore the man or woman of faith can have no monopoly of certainty they only have one certainty god and his love that's the basic resource the spiritual food that sustains the believer in their gropings and questings and searchings in the comparative dark for meaning Just coping with living presents us with a giant question mark as we cling to the solid rock of God as we wrestle with the mysteries. Like Abraham, we know this much, that we worship a God we cannot see, but listen for a God whose voice we do not hear, other than in the confusion of our own soul and the quietness of our waiting spirit wouldn't it be much easier lord if you just made yourself plainer revealed yourself more convincingly made this life of faith a little less perplexing lord why is it so hard like rolling a boulder up a mountain and as abraham got no reply we get no answer You may have heard of the minister over in Edinburgh and Scotland, who every morning climbed a hill called Arthur's Seat that looks out over the city, and he would climb up in the morning and look out and pray for his congregation. Every morning. Well, as the months passed, the congregation stayed pretty much the same, but the minister ended up with thighs like tree trunks. The vital clue we have is this. Once having climbed Mount Moriah and having obeyed and trusted to the utmost, Abraham, out of the questioning, found to his surprise that he had grown strong, had come to this clear and utter conviction, that the Lord himself will provide. That while there would always be questions, as long as there were believers to ask them, there was also the Lord who would enable, who would provide. Faith coming through the dark night of the soul emerges bruised and bloodied, but stronger as a byproduct of the pressure the muscles develop strong and ready to move forward trusting still Abraham and Isaac the singer Leonard Cohen tells this great story in one of his finest songs the door it opened slowly my father he came in i was 9 years old and he stood so tall above me his blue eyes, they were shining, and his voice was very cold. He said, I've had a vision, and you know I'm strong and holy. I must do what I've been told. So we started up the mountain. I was running, he was walking, and his axe was made of gold. Well the trees, they got much smaller. The lake, a lady's mirror. We stopped to drink some wine, then he threw the bottle over broke a minute later, and he put his hand in mine. I thought I saw an eagle, but it might have been a vulture. I never could decide. Then my father built an altar. He looked once behind his shoulder. He knew I would not hide. You who build these altars now to sacrifice these children, you must not do it anymore. A scheme is not efficient. And you have not been tempted by a demon or a god. You who stand above them now, your hat just blunt and bloody. You were not there before when I lay upon a mountain. And my father's hand was trembling with the beauty of the world.